Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, history friends, Zach Twomley here. I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is taking a short break over the Christmas period. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 13th of January for the regular scheduled 30 Years War programming and the beginning of 2021, which surely cannot be any worse than 2020. Unless, of course, diplomacy fails in a god-awful way and we're into World War Three. But hopefully not. I hope you guys stay safe and enjoy yourselves over the Christmas period and that you're all ready to resume the story of the 30 Years' War once we come back. But in the meantime, enjoy episode 25 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. My name is Zach Twomley, this is When Diplomacy Fails, and I'm so thankful that you've decided to join me today to learn about, well, a conflict which happened 400 years ago, but which people are still talking about to this day. Last time we left Frederick and his cause to the side, after watching things get progressively worse for him and progressively better for Emperor Ferdinand. The rivalry between Frederick and Ferdinand, Elector and Emperor respectively, Calvinist and Catholic respectively, threatened to rip the Holy Roman Empire apart if enough powers determined to involve themselves. By spring 1623 though, the contest had become pretty much one-sided. Frederick was left without any options, but a whole load of problems. Now that we've brought that relationship beyond the point of no return, it's time we addressed that elephant in the room. That important event in April 1621, the expiry of the 12 years truce between the Spanish and Dutch, which made everyone in Europe nervous because they thought that that would spark off a wider conflict. Little did they know that conflict would be sparked off three years before with the Bohemian Revolt and everything else we've looked at since. Technically, if you can believe it, the Spanish still believed, or at least claimed to believe, that they could defeat the Dutch, but whether this was possible or not depended very much on whom you asked. While on paper this goal of defeating the Dutch was everything, in reality there was no way for Spain to roll back the clock to a time when Madrid ruled over the Hague. This fact was tacitly acknowledged by some and ignored by others, but it formed only one aspect of the conflict which by its end in 1648 would render Spain effectively bankrupt and the Dutch supreme in their status as the premier trading nation on earth. 
1621, though, there was still some ways to go before the war would end, and before the Philippian kings of Spain would or could accept the Dutch affront to the Spanish claim of supremacy, they had to basically make a show of fighting it out for a little while longer. If it was a war they were bound to lose, then Madrid was still determined to go down fighting. In this episode, we'll set much of the scene leading up to 1621. In other words, how did the Dutch and Spanish get on during their 12 years truce, which lasted from 1609 to 21? What compelled the sides to advocate breaking or renewing it? And how did the initial manoeuvres in this war look in the context of a conflict already well in play in Bohemia, which spread across the continent at a rapid rate? The Bohemian Revolt and then the Palatine War clearly demonstrated that the Thirty Years' War was widening in its scope, and this Dutch element was one important further demonstration of that fact. Without any further ado then, let's get into it as I take you to the tangled Spanish-Dutch relationship of the early 17th century. In his article on the Revolt of the Netherlands, the historian Herbert H. Rowan made the following concise assessment. A special place in historical studies belongs to those great events that everyone knows of, but few know, at least know deeply and accurately. In such cases, received notions of sequence, character, causes and results continue to be passed on, unchallenged by any requirement that the explanation fit the facts and that the facts receive explanation. One such great event is the revolt of the Low Countries in the 16th century. Indeed, if the Dutch revolt against the Spanish can be considered an event which is known of but not truly known, then certain periods within that seismic event must represent great mysteries. It may well be common knowledge that in the late 16th century the Dutch revolted against Spain and that by 1648 they had won this battle, but the interim and the stretch of 12 years when peace was favoured over war represents a curious and somewhat unexpected interlude in a struggle where national survival was supposed to be at stake. Unpacking the 12 years truce and its expiration requires some work then. Ever since it had been signed in 1609, the 12 years truce had created something of a stopwatch. 12 years remained on the clock, which counted down to a resumption of hostilities in a sensitive corner of Europe, and when this countdown was finished, there was no guarantee that powers external to the Spanish-Dutch war wouldn't get involved. After all, the years leading up to the truce in 1609 had seen no shortage of foreign intervention. The French and English had involved themselves heavily in the Dutch war effort, using the conflict as a means to basically get back at Spain, and they had both paid for it in equal measure, the Spanish supporting Catholic rebels in Ireland and intervening heavily in the French wars of religion and succession wars that followed. The Spanish-Dutch War, the 80 years' war of Dutch resistance to Spanish claims on their sovereignty, had thus demonstrated clear potential for fanning the flames of war in Europe. So, because of this, all eyes were on the expiration date of 1621, with the expectation that the resumption of the war would tell a similar story once again. Of course, in 1609, nobody could have imagined that Frederick V, Elector Palatine, would make his own conflict and story disconnected from the Spanish-Dutch conflict. The focal point of warfare in Europe was not to be the Netherlands then, but the Holy Roman Empire and, more specifically, the Palatinate and Bohemia. The House of Orange was not to be the family of resistance against the Habsburgs, 
This task was taken by the Palatine House of Wittelsbach. Warfare was not to begin with the familiar process of successive sieges and efforts to outmaneuver one another, as had been seen in the Spanish-Dutch War, but instead with a series of ruinous revolts and punitive campaigns, which destroyed so much of the Empire's prosperity. Nonetheless, even while warfare had been a staple fact of European relations for three years by the time the Twelve Years' Truce expired in April 1621, there remained potential beyond the original scope of expectations to transform this Spanish-Dutch War, not only into a regional conflict, but into another appendage of the Palatine War against the Holy Roman Emperor. For one historian, the intensification of conflict from 1621 contributed to the feeling of general crisis at this time, because of the coincidence of the outbreak of the Bohemian Revolt and the resumption of the Hispano-Dutch War with the peak of the trade, production and currency problems coming around 1618-21. to Another historian remarked that the very expansion and continuation of war in Europe beyond 1621 must be linked to the end of the Twelve Years' Truce and the resumption of hostilities between Spain and the Netherlands in 1621. Adding that the Spanish-Dutch conflict had a profound impact upon the war that was then underway in Germany, because, as this historian Myron P. Gutman put it, the renewal of hostilities in the Low Countries drained Spanish resources from the commitment to Ferdinand. Moreover, although the Dutch were reluctant to intervene actively before 1621 for fear of prematurely opening their war with Spain, they gave moderate support to Frederick and his allies after the end of the truce in order to create diversions which would prevent the Habsburgs from uniting against them. The result, of course, was that neither side of the conflict in Western Europe or in Central Europe was easily resolved. Just as the resumption of the war forced Spain to divert resources, so had the truce enabled Madrid to focus on the defence of Ferdinand's interests alone. As the weeks ticked by and April 1621 approached, the Spanish army in the southern Netherlands, under the command of Ambrogio Spignola, had even effected an ingenious coup, whereby, all through some deft manoeuvring, he compelled the Evangelical Union to disband. Spain had not been above using the war against Frederick to its advantage. If you'll remember, it had occupied the lower Palatinate along the Rhine, which was obviously hugely advantageous to Spanish strategic interests, and it greatly aided Madrid's ability to fight its war against the Dutch. In this sense, it would be safe to say that the Spanish benefited from the Twelve Years' Truce at home, since it enabled its important diplomats and statesmen, among them Count Onate, Balthazar de Zaniga, and the Archdukes, to campaign for Spanish interests without having to worry about the northern flank all that much. Without Spanish help, indeed, Ferdinand's task would have been much more difficult, and without the peace with the Dutch, Spain would never have been able to spare so many men for the Emperor's war effort. While advantages had been gleaned from the truce then, two anxieties remained for Madrid. The first was that the truce had been damaging in other ways to Spanish interests, especially her overseas, commercial and colonial interests, and her prestige. If the Dutch were made absolute sovereigns of the lands they occupy, it will clearly be seen as damaging to our reputation, went the advice of King Philip III to his negotiators in Brussels in 1607. By 1621, this idea had gained a life of its own. The second concern was that, as the expiration of the truce loomed, 
Spanish statesmen grew more and more concerned that the resumption of the conflict would severely hamper Spanish flexibility and security and might even compromise their efforts to support Ferdinand. Baltazar de Zaniga, Spain's chief minister during the years of 1619-22, to himself harboured no illusions on the likelihood of success if the war with the Dutch was resumed, as he wrote in April 1619, that is two years before the truce was going to expire, We cannot, by force of arms, reduce these Dutch provinces to their former obedience. Whoever looks at the matter carefully and without passion must be impressed by the great armed strength of those provinces, both by land and by sea. Their strong geographical position, ringed by the sea and by great rivers, lying close to France, England and Germany. Furthermore, that state is at the very height of its greatness, while ours is in disarray. To promise ourselves that we can conquer the Dutch is to seek the impossible, to delude ourselves. To those who put all the blame for our troubles on the truce and foresee great benefits from breaking it, we can say for certain that whether we end it or not, we shall always be at a disadvantage. Affairs can get to a certain stage where every decision taken is for the worse, not through a lack of good advice, but because the situation is so desperate that no remedy can conceivably be found. Such a cynical, blunt and pessimistic view of Spain's position in 1619, and by its chief minister, no less, spoke volumes about the Spanish government's mood at the time. Perhaps more problematic was the fact that Balthazar de Zuniga felt, as did his peers in the Spanish Council of State, that even while a resumption of hostilities with the Dutch wouldn't bring positive benefits, there was no option other than to violate the truce, since its continuation would only have degraded Spain's strategic position more. Furthermore, while Zuniga here exclaimed how unlikely a victory against the Dutch was, the war would be resumed in April 1621 on this understanding and without a realistic plan regarding how exactly a victory of any recognisable sort would be achieved. Balthazar de Zuniga knew that Philip III's administration was staring defeat in the face, but he could not imagine any possible means to achieve victory. Zuniga's downcast pronouncements on the situation in Germany were very similar to those of the Netherlands. He said the following. The situation demands that we should make all those supreme efforts that are normally made when one is confronted by total disaster, attempting to raise all possible resources to provide the Austrian Archduke with what he is asking for and attending to all the other matters insofar as it is humanly possible. To Balthazar de Zuniga, the dilemma that Spain was facing was plain, but the solution was unclear. If Spain didn't interfere with force to support Ferdinand, then not only would the Austrian Habsburgs topple, but Protestantism itself would be invigorated throughout Europe, which would certainly invigorate the Dutch as a result. With Frederick triumphant, King of Bohemia, possessing of two votes in the Electoral College and posing as the champion of Protestantism, was it likely that he would refrain from involving himself in the resumption of the Dutch war with Spain, especially considering the Dutch efforts to supply the nephew of their stadtholder with aid. As Balthazar de Zuniga understood, and better than Ferdinand it would seem, a heavy investment in the troubled emperor's cause would surely ignite Frederick's passions, sharpen all attitudes, and prolong the conflict in the empire well into the future. To Zuniga, the choice was either to permit the reduction in the dynasty's power and prestige, or provoke a series of interconnected wars which would surely produce the same result in the long run. At this crossroads in policy, Zuniga chose the latter option, because at least in the realm of war, opportunities could present themselves which 
could not be found in the abandonment of Ferdinand's cause. This choice had the effect of fusing the Dutch and Palatine Wars together for Spain, and it made it impossible for Madrid to abandon Germany, just as resources were badly needed for the Netherlands. By 1620, the Spanish had already diverted some soldiers from its Italian and Netherlands possessions, but still Ferdinand was beleaguered, and the pressures from Frederick's allies were proving acute. After some deliberation then in the spring of 1620, Zuniga's policy aims were implemented, and a solid army of 20,000 men was sent from Spain, not to relieve Vienna or reinforce Hungary, but to attack and occupy the Rhine Palatinate directly. We've glossed over this act before, but the significance of it shouldn't be understated, because this represented the point of no return for Spain. Up to this point, Spanish aid had hardly been a secret, but it had been based more around supporting Emperor Ferdinand, rather than opening a new theatre in the war in his name. As we saw, though, once the ultimatum to Frederick expired in June 1620, a Spanish army led by the veteran Ambrogio Spignola was on the move. This expedition cut the Gordian knot of Frederick's position in the empire. Combined with the destruction of the Bohemian Palatine army at the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620, all of these disasters rendered Frederick's position untenable. It seems that Frederick did not expect for the Spanish to do this and for them to launch such a brazen violation of his territory, but it also appears that the Dutch had been fooled as well. When Spaniola's force had first appeared in spring 1620 and it was first learned of that it was such a large army, it was assumed that the Genoese Generalissimo would march directly to Prague and put down the Bohemian Revolt once and for all. Spaniola's decision to remain on the Rhine and eradicate the potential for an attack on the Emperor from the Palatinate was thus a brilliant strategic coup, but it was a disastrous move in the long run because it made compromise completely impossible. It raised the stakes as well, because the Dutch had proved the most significant paymaster of the Bohemian rebels up to that point, but they had refrained from supplying troops. From early 1619 to late 1620, the Dutch provided a subsidy of 25,000 talers a month to Frederick, in spite of the conflicts ongoing within and without of the Republic at that time. By summer 1620 then, the Palatine conflict had been treated by both sides as merely the latest in a series of proxy wars between the Spanish and Dutch. But the determined Spanish military involvement made Madrid's intentions clear. Spain had never directly invested so much military personnel in such a conflict since the Dutch War, and the very arrival of Spaniola, a known figure in Dutch circles, demonstrated that rather than merely a proxy war, Madrid had turned the Palatinate into its latest theatre of the war with the Dutch. The Dutch, much like Frederick, had underestimated the Spanish resolve to support the Emperor. By providing the support, Spain ensured that Ferdinand could pursue the war on a scale far in excess of what he was actually capable of, or of what his German allies were capable of. Baldassar de Zuniga's decision to draw both branches of the Habsburg dynasty together, regardless of the consequences, meant that in practice, a critical step in turning the revolt in Bohemia into the Thirty Years' War had been taken, as one historian said. Spanish fortunes were now bound to Ferdinand, and since retreat meant defeat, total war and the perpetuation of the most ruinous conflict in the history of early modern Europe proved the only available course. While the scale of Spanish-Dutch hostility increased markedly after the Spanish intervention in the Palatinate, it would be incorrect to view this Spanish escalation 
as an overtly belligerent act during a time of peace. Dutch opposition to Spanish policy hadn't ceased simply because open warfare had ceased. Warfare by other means during the tenure of the truce, including through diplomatic scheming, strategic preparations, or most lucratively of all for the Dutch, privateering in Spain's colonies in the New World where the truce did not apply, produced impressive results. The Spanish, as we have seen, focused largely on their European position and improved it alongside Emperor Ferdinand's campaigns. By contrast, the Dutch set their sights further afield and they proved so successful at privateering that regular fleets were sent with the express purpose of frustrating the Spanish and diverting their resources. Thanks to the Iberian Union of 1580, Spanish and Portuguese shipping were liable to attack and this state of what amounted to open season on the high seas cost Madrid dearly. Geoffrey Parker provided the figure of £100,000 to £200,000 in annual losses thanks to the professional piracy of the Dutch. An incredible figure when we consider that the upkeep of Spain's army in the Netherlands was costing them seven hundred grand per year. As we'll discover in later episodes, the Spanish vulnerability to Dutch overseas attacks and their inability to properly combat them would contribute significantly to the rot engendered within the Spanish monarchy and its effective collapse into revolt and turmoil in the 1640s. The Dutch shipped relentlessly at the Spanish position, to the extent that Madrid diverted considerable resources to shore up its defences in the Americas, and the prospect of abandoning the Philippines completely was even discussed, so prohibitive were the costs of defending it. If the Philippines was abandoned, though, the Spanish feared the prospect of the Dutch occupying these islands and using them as a base to finish off Portuguese trade in the West Pacific once and for all. It was thanks to the extensive piracy of the Dutch that Spain's most renowned colonial interests operated at a significant loss. During the years 1618-21, to Mexico sent only 400 grand to the Philippines and a slightly lower amount back to Spain. These sums were lost in the bottomless pit of need and waste which the Spanish system had created. Indeed, as the historian Geoffrey Parker noted, In the discussions at the Spanish court in 1619-20 over the possibility of renewing the truce, the strongest and perhaps most decisive argument against prolonging the truce was the damage which the Dutch were doing to the Indies and America trade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If the Dutch threat was not dealt with, then Spain would be insolvent purely thanks to the Dutch activities overseas. Operating on this kind of a balance sheet simply wasn't sustainable, and a resumption of the war in Europe, it was said, was the best means through which Spain could hamper Dutch efforts overseas. Initially, at least, this idea was correct. The expenses incurred from overseas dangers also had to be measured against the similarly high costs of combating the Dutch influence in Europe. During the ulic cleve succession crisis, for instance, from 1609 to 14, the Dutch and Spanish supported different candidates and drew in different powers to their side, with the result that soldiers were mobilised and the Austrian Habsburgs were scandalised for acting preemptively. The conclusion of this crisis in 1614 enabled the Spanish to focus its attentions on the imperial succession, and Philip III of Spain negotiated with the Austrian Habsburgs in a process which wasn't resolved until 1617. The outcome of these negotiations, the Onate Treaty, which we've looked at before, provided for extensive Spanish support of Ferdinand once he became emperor, despite the fact that Spanish finances and attentions were already spread thin. Indeed, the conclusion of the ulic cleve crisis was followed quickly by another conflict, the so-called Uzcock War in the Balkans, and then a succession war in Mantua in Italy. Both of these conflicts drew in Savoy and Venice, and Dutch aid in money, materials, and even warships were forthcoming. Such conflicts and commitments did not guarantee the eruption of the Bohemian Revolt in May 1618, or its escalation in September 1619, when Frederick accepted the Bohemian crown and turned the event into one of imperial importance for the Habsburgs. While the Spanish had not wanted the Bohemian Revolt, they saw in its outbreak a chance to reinforce Ferdinand and gain some strategic advantages for themselves, particularly once Frederick was placed under the imperial ban in January 1621, and his lands were then open for the taking. If Spain could not effectively combat the Dutch abroad, then they would do their best to surround them at home, so that Spanish arms would be in the best possible position to attack those darned rebels once the truce expired. Similarly, since the Spanish were so inclined to use Frederick's war to their advantage, the Dutch were determined to support the banished Elector Palatine and house him comfortably in The Hague while his court organised anti-Hausberg schemes. Far more than his father-in-law in London, Frederick's Dutch friends were invaluable to his war effort. Little wonder that three of Frederick's children received names inspired by the Dutch, Frederick Henry, Maurice and Louisa Hollandia. Elizabeth, Frederick's wife, was perceptive enough to request that the entire States General, that is, the governing body of the Dutch Republic, became Louise's godparents. A cynic might point out that Frederick and Elizabeth used their children to pull at the heartstrings of the Dutch, but it should be underlined that this act of naming their children after their allies was not undertaken to such an extent in honour of any other ally. The Palatine family's effective use of its offspring 
tended to be effective because Frederick himself was related to the House of Orange through his mother, who was the daughter of William the Silent. This made Maurice and Frederick Henry, the Dutch Republic's most celebrated military and civic leaders, uncles of Frederick and great-uncles of Frederick's children. It was only to be expected that Frederick would seek to exploit these connections, as he attempted to do with his Danish, English and Brandenburg relatives, to varying degrees of success. Thanks to the looming Dutch conflict with the Spanish Habsburgs, and the interconnected nature of this conflict with that of Frederick, it was only natural that the Dutch would prove so obliging, at least in the first few years. Yet it should be added, at the same time of the eruption of the Bohemian Revolt in May 1618, the Dutch were slow to comprehend the gravity of the Bohemian conflict, or to pledge much significant aid to the rebels. The tardiness in supporting anyone wasn't caused only by a misreading of the Bohemian situation, but by the state of Dutch society in 1618, which was then profoundly distracted by domestic issues. Not until the end of 1618, when these domestic issues reached their ugly culmination, would the Dutch be ready and able to intervene in the Bohemian Revolt in earnest. It is significant that while the Spanish used the truce as an opportunity to strengthen their position at home in Europe, what received successive blows to their security abroad, the Dutch seemed to suffer the opposite problem. Their piratical activities during this period, as we've seen, distinguished the Dutch as the most competent sailors and most potent threat to Spanish commercialism in the New World. However, within the Dutch Republic, conflicts and tensions, which had so long lain dormant as the war against Spain had been pursued, were aired and aggravated to the extent that the Dutch seemed to be tearing themselves apart at the seams. We're going to continue our story of the Dutch in just a moment, but first I wanted to remind you guys, because I don't do this enough, that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and if you like When Diplomacy Fails, it's very likely that you'll also like some of the other great podcasts in this grouping. Because there are 12 months in the year, we like to pick a month to basically point your guys' attention towards a specific podcast. And December, although I haven't been doing this very well, December is the month that we talk to you about Pontifacts. If you weren't aware, Pontifacts is the podcast for those interested in the history of the Popes. In a friendly, conversational style that's very accessible but also very informative, the hosts of Pontifacts take you through some of the most fascinating characters that the papacy has ever produced. It also introduces you to the context of these popes, the eras they ruled in, and how they got on domestically and in terms of foreign policy as well. It's a great show and it's got a very unique style and voice, so I would recommend you checking out Pontifacts if popes are your thing. Popes aren't all that important by the Thirty Years' War. As we'll see later on, they do try and make their presence felt, but with varying degrees of success. But that doesn't mean Pontifacts isn't worth your time. You can find them by searching for Pontifacts in any of your podcatchers, or by clicking on the link in the description below, which will take you to a place where you can listen to the Pontifacts podcast. Alrighty guys, now on with the show. The Dutch Republic possessed a unique governmental system all their own. The States General was the governing assembly of the country, and it contained at most 12 deputies, who were nominated and then sent from the provincial assemblies of the seven provinces which made up the Republic. Due to its population size, its income from trade, and its history of supplying the bulk of the monies to pay for the war against Spain, the province of Holland was the most powerful presence in the Republic, 
and in the States General, followed by the province of Zealand. The order of precedence among these seven provinces did create tensions, but the most pressing tensions were provided by the conflict within Dutch society between two political ideas, one being the Orangist ideal, espoused by supporters of the House of Orange, the military and civic leaders of the country, and the other being the Republican, or Regent, ideal, which sought to reduce the power of the House of Orange and place more power in the hands of the Regents. As one 19th century historian put it more eloquently, The history of the United Provinces, and of Holland especially, from the close of the Spanish rule down to the establishment of the modern monarchy of the Netherlands, is distinguished for its manifestation of a permanent struggle between different, opposite principles, liberty and authority, municipal principle and state principle, republic and monarchy, the spirit of federal isolation and that of centralization, appear to give battle to each other upon a territory itself with difficulty defended from the waves of the ocean by the watchful industry of its inhabitants. Regents were the ruling class of the republic. There was about 2,000 of them, but they tended to be the wealthiest citizens of the country, and they were drawn from 57 of the most important towns. Aside from the States General and the Regents was the ruling House of Orange. This House of Orange, which currently serves as the monarchy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, so you can tell how this struggle eventually panned out, has only been installed as a monarchy within the last two centuries, specifically after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Before this transformation of the contract that the House of Orange had with the Dutch people, the House of Orange and the princes it produced enjoyed a vibrant but varied relationship with the ruling apparatus of the Republic. The task of the Princes of Orange was to coordinate the military aspects of the defence against Spain, but for this task to be successful, they required political support from the States General, since the House of Orange was really just a powerful, influential family at the end of the day, and it was subservient to that authority that the States General had. This made it necessary for the Princes of Orange to cultivate their own political support base in the country, hence the Orangist Party. In addition to their military role, the Princes of Orange tended to occupy a position called Stadtholder, an office which each of these seven provinces had, as well as the aforementioned military position of Captain General of the Dutch Army and Navy. The very office of Stadtholder is typically difficult to define in the more straightforward political systems of today, and it contains few equivalents in European politics. The office, interestingly enough, was actually inherited from Spain when the Stadtholder would serve as a regent for the Spanish with a Prince of Orange, who hailed from the Principality of Orange in the southwest of France, tending to occupy the office. The Dutch Revolt, which erupted in the late 1560s and crystallised in the 1579 Union of Utrecht, transformed the Stadtholder from a regent of the King of Spain to the leader of the opposition against him. This process was only furthered by the son of William the Silent, Maurice, who declared in 1617, before the Regional Assembly in Holland, that This matter of the war is not to be settled by many orations and flowery arguments, but with this, slapping his sword hilt on his sword as he did this, with this I will defend the religion which my father implanted in these lands, and I shall see who will hinder me. So revered was William of Orange, or William the Silent, who lived from 1533 to 84, in his position of Stadtholder, that he effectively established the reputation of that position for his successors to follow. 
William's two sons, Maurice, who lived until 1625, and Frederick Henry, who lived till 1647, only built upon the ideals and traditions of this office, making it their own and leading the Dutch to great victories against the Spanish. Inevitably, the triumphs these men achieved evoked pride and intense passion among the Dutch people, which increased the tension between the Orangists, who wanted their princes to possess greater powers, and the Regents, who wanted to curb this power. These tensions culminated at several points in Dutch history, when the Orangists accumulated enough power to purge the Regent ruling class and replace them with Regents loyal to the House of Orange. This occurred most violently in 1672, when the leader of the ruling Regent party and his brother were torn to pieces by the mob, their body parts and genitals cut off and burned. Yeah. But in 1618, the confrontation between these two elements in Dutch society culminated for the first time, and while no body parts were burned in anger, a significant head was lost. Combined with the heady mix of religious diversity and anxiety over the looming expiration of the truce with Spain, tensions in the Dutch Republic appeared to be exploding just as affairs in Bohemia were taking on a troubling significance all of their own. In the next episode, so we'll be back on the 13th of January, we'll examine this eruption of Dutch political passions and religious passions and assess its significance in the context of the worsening crisis in Bohemia. We'll also address the idea of a Spanish decline, analyse how Spain's contemporaries viewed this idea in the early 17th century, and whether this situation could be reversed. It's a long list of things to do, but it's a really fascinating episode, so I hope you'll join me in four weeks' time for that. In the meantime, my lovely history friends and patrons, thanks so much for joining me here for episode 25 of the 30 Years' War. I hope you have a safe, restful, enjoyable Christmas period. And that we round off the year 2020 by, hopefully, making 2021 a better place to be. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing all of you soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.